it's not just about like going and casting your ballot and this person does this other transactional thing. There's this like very complex power that we're fighting. We have to be ready and willing to take on that full power. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Arisha Hatch, who is the executive director of Color of Change PAC. Color of Change is our largest online racial justice organization, a group with 7 million members that push corporations and the government to create a more human and less hostile world for black people in America. And Arisha has been there for a decade since they were quite small. She's an important advocate and activist and among my favorite guests on the show. We talked about power and justice and leadership, things like that. You'll want to listen to her. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Arisha Hatch of Color of Change. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Arisha. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Arisha Hatch. I hold a lot of titles, but I'm the executive director of Color of Change Pack. I guess one of my most near and dear titles. And uh, I've been at Color of Change for just about 10 years now. I'm fighting to build a more humane and less hostile reality for Black people in this country. Well, that is a piece of your biography, as I know. You know, one of the things that I was thinking today in preparing to interview you is you're a person who's been interviewed a lot. You've been on quite a number of podcasts. You've had a career that's more and more in the public eye. And you're kind of one of these activists who has become celebrated, at least in the circles where activists are paid attention to. And I wonder if I could just ask you a little about that. I think there's often a tension for activists in putting themselves forward in front of a community, right? How do you think about when you appear as a leader, when you talk about yourself and about color of change and other things along the way, how do you think about leadership and how you fit into who you're working with and for? Mm-hmm. Um, it's such an interesting question because it's the thing that I've been super uncomfortable with as my leadership has grown. I never expected to be on this path. I didn't 
go to college for this. I didn't grow up in an overwhelmingly political family or a family that was focused on racial justice in the way that I've seen a lot of my peers or colleagues. And I'm incredibly introverted and shy. And so this has been like the test for me as I've been trying to grow as a leader of being really comfortable being a public advocate for some of the things that we fight for. Uh, It's not something that comes super naturally to me. I don't have a big social media profile. I'm intensely private. It has been one of the harder aspects and more challenging aspects of my job here is sort of like really leaning into that piece of it. I consider myself an introvert. I consider myself shy. I used to run a software company and I used to hate having to go attend a panel discussion in front of a crowd or make appearances representing the company. I did it sort of with dread almost every time. And sometimes I enjoyed it and sometimes I didn't. And a lot of that had to do with whether I guess I felt I was doing a good job or not, or a halfway decent job. But sometimes I think that people who are like that, which maybe it's something that we share, have a different kind of knack for it than the extrovert who likes to hear themselves talk. What do you think? As I think about myself, I'm super self-critical. I've been at Color of Change in February. It will be 10 years. And I never thought I would have a job for 10 years, like in the same place. Like I often look down on those folks. But I still see myself as um, someone that's deeply learning. Um, I don't feel like an expert. Sometimes I can back out of that and, you know, be deeply reflective and um, can say, oh, these are things that I've contributed. These are lots of things that I've learned. I do have a level of expertise in comparison to others, but I still feel like I'm learning. There's still a big piece of me that's like, even 10 years in, there's still a big piece of me that is like, wait until I figure out how to do this job. Like, wait until I figure out how to do this. For me, that confidence building process, that learning process, I think has improved the work that I've done. I'm often triggered in spaces when I feel like people are presenting really confidently, but have no idea what they're talking about and are sort of fabricating. Like I I feel really uncomfortable with the salesmanship and performance. And so I've tried to lean in on honesty and vulnerability and just being, even with my like team and staff, I'm just like, this is really hard what we're doing. This is like really, really, really hard what we're trying to do here. Well, you, in a certain way, you've already put me at ease in the conversation by saying that and by just the feel of the conversation. I think I feel the same way. I, I I don't necessarily had to deal with people who, who present that way. So it's very interesting, but I think there's also something about the nature of activism that is humbling because the barriers to change are high and success when it, even when it comes is often slow or if it's fast, it's very unpredictable, you know, like how do you think about the business of making change? Um, it's been a lesson, you know, we have these like dominant narratives, like the arc of the world bends towards justice and they feel like so good, but it's like, actually, no, it can be so much. <laughs> sometimes, more. sometimes things bend backward for a thousand years. You get the dark ages in human history. You get 
what happened after the Civil War, where we went way backwards, you know, in this country. And we're in a, in a period of such complexity right now where on some levels we are, you know, we're, it is a very reactionary time and we're going backwards. And on other levels, we are making progress and it's a huge fight and a swirl of different directions. How do you think color of change fits into that, into that complex environment uh, where change is really contested on, on almost every front? Yeah, I think color of change is, to a certain extent, a disruptive organization in a lot of ways. We have this sort of digital model that is, is, is fairly recent, but we've grown accustomed to, and there's a way in which color of change's approach uh, and the way that we think about digital organizing feels very different from the ways in which progressives or Democrats think about digital organizing. Um, my training at Color of Change has really been uh, about negotiating with power, uh, about trying to leverage the power that we have, and then using the technology and the communications infrastructures that we've built around us to make that change louder, to step in and, and really push shorter for the change that we've had. But I have been trained in a digital racial justice sort of movement that was thinking on the one hand about digital, about email and open rates and social media and, you know, sharing. But on the other hand, like the central focus of our work is about forcing decision makers to make decisions that benefit Black people. Uh, and so I've spent the last decade or so thinking about and being confused about how we hold this sort of being present, being visible, being current, being storytellers about the things that are happening in our world versus actually like negotiating with power and the ways in which those things interact, intersect, sometimes fight against each other. Um, but that's where my focus has been. Have you read Hari Han, who writes? Yes, a, I love Hari. Yeah, I, I just interviewed her for the second time recently, and she has a new book out, uh, "Prisms of the People." Right, and one of the key things that stuck with me from talking to her and reading that was this relationship between the the leadership and the constituency, and when you have the right kind of constituency that's really with you, then you have power to negotiate on their behalf, as you're saying, right? But there, but you have to sort of also have people who are very knowledgeable like you and, and I assume other leadership at Color of Change and elsewhere to carry on conversations that are complex that not everybody, you know, has the background to carry on. I saw that you were like recently admonishing the White House about student loan stuff, right? For example. To be in that position, that's fairly new in, in American history for, I mean, I don't know, you know, what, what people leading digital organizations have the ear of the White House and can, you know, I'm certain they care over there, right? They may not be doing the right thing all the time, but they, I'm certain they care. How does that feel, that power? How much power do you feel? How tenuous is that? And what impact can you have with it? I think one of the the things that's grown for me um, and evolved for me is my understanding and my thinking around power. 
and the way in which color changes power has evolved over the last 10 years. Um, you know, we oftentimes talk about power as if it's this like concrete thing invested in one person, invested in one decision maker. And really power is dynamic. It evolves. There's a difference between gaining power and holding power, the things that you have to do to do those things. And I've seen that all through the work at Color of Change. There was a point when we could just like go after anyone, you know, we could say anything, whenever we felt it, it was righteous, it was moral. And then you, you build relationships, you grow in your power, uh, you realize the difference in the mentality and state of feeling powerless versus being powerful, being responsible versus being um, sort of like a victim of the things that are happening. And it makes things more complicated. One of the things that I think that Color of Change has done well, that is a constant battle internally, is how do you walk the line? How do you walk that tightrope between holding relationships, continuing relationships, but also being able to say to folks that you're in relationship with, like, I want more from you. I need more from you. You promise me more while also not getting kicked out of the room. Being able to hold a spot in the room while also being able to hold an opinion, like that's the, that's the new skill. That's the new power. That's the new privilege that I think we're continuing to try to figure out while continuing to grow that power and grow that influence. Do you have a rule of thumb you've developed? Is it like sensing, oh, I think I can go this far or not further? What occurs to me is uh, we just recently had the Build Back Better sort of shelved by Manchin after just torturing us all fall. And I think the Biden administration or probably the president himself had to make a decision about that statement that got made where they he kind of smacked him for the first time, right? Or harder than usual anyway. And that was his decision even like about how to wield power and, and is there going to be blowback? Is there going to, you know, like you don't want to do something to gratify yourself. You want to be effective, right? Yeah. I want to win. It's the perfect example that shows like the limits of power. Here's the president of the United States. Like there are a lot of critiques about president Biden I have like very little doubt that he wanted to get Build Back Better done. You know what I mean? Like needed to get it done, wanted to get it done and can't. Most powerful person in the world, in theory, can't. I, I think it's this like nuanced view of power that our movement needs to embrace. You know, one of the things that Color of Change Pack really did, and it was controversial at the time, we feared blowback, but uh, in 2016, we started Color of Change Pack because we wanted to intervene in district attorney races. People are like, you're going to endorse a, a district attorney. You're going to endorse someone that is going to incarcerate Black people. And it was like sort of a big deal. And it was one of, you know, the early lessons that I had in like really negotiating what power is. You know, I went to law school. I remember, you know, going through my first year of criminal law and, you know, I did well in criminal law. And my professor, Professor Kreitzberg, came to me and she was like, oh, there's a job fair. Do you want to go talk to the DA's office or the public defender's office? I was like, absolutely not. Like, maybe I'll talk to the public defender's office. But like, I had this vision of myself being a corporate swanky lawyer. So didn't want to do that. But I would never 
go and work for the DA. I would never go and work for the police. That feels like the bad guys. Yeah, those are the bad guys. I would never do that. And so even this like decision to say, we're going to try to define what a progressive prosecutor is. We believe that a progressive prosecutor exists. We don't think it's like the final endpoint of what criminal justice reform will look like, but we believe that there is a better version of what exists today. We know that progressives are not competing in this space. We've just seeded this in the same way that I said to my law professor, I would never be a DA. I would never put black people in jail, you know, um, and going into that DA work, electing district attorneys who are going to do things that we don't like, um, who are not going to do all the things that they promised to do. Uh, and then like how you hold that space has been an interesting tension and they get into office And they can say they want to do all the things. They want to end cash bail. They want to treat kids like kids. They don't want to do the death penalty. They can say all the things. And then they get into a prosecutor's office and there are like 500 prosecutors there who believe in tough on crime ethic, who want to prosecute marijuana offenses. And they have an organizing project now. They have to fundamentally shift the office that they're trying to lead based on the promises that they've made to the public. And so seeing that, inside outside struggle has like complicated this picture of power for me. Uh, It's made me more patient in some ways. Being a leader has made me more patient for how like hard change can be internally. I'm frustrated by the Biden administration. They're not in complete control. I feel like we have, we're in a situation as someone that runs a path and is going to go out and try to talk to black people about why it's important to participate. I feel like it's a hard narrative that we're being asked to hold given the decisions and the administration makes decisions that don't make sense to me, like not moving forward on student loans. Like those things also don't make sense to me. So I, I don't know. I think we're negotiating through rocky waters now as organizers. Yeah. And it's a tricky situation because Ultimately, for president, you come down to a vote between something terrible and something way better on so many fronts. If you just see who's running the cabinet agencies and who's regulating and so many of the decisions across the board are vastly better than under Trump or under Bush, but they aren't perfect, right? And Biden does represent a broad coalition that doesn't always align with what your group in particular would want. I want to know again, like where does color change fit in? What would you say is the the ideology and the constituency of your group? What color change does is it gives on on the on the largest scale level, it gives people easy things to do in response to the injustices that they see in this country. So um, most people uh, that are members of color change sign a couple of petitions a year. They may see uh, an issue of police violence, or there may be another political issue that they really care about, and they sign a petition to add their voice. They might make phone calls or send a letter, um, but use their voice in some sort of way. Another piece of our work is really around deeper leadership development and member development, and so there's a lot of that going on. But um, I think who color of change is, is that we try to provide a big tent. And, you know, there's folks been doing research about us. So this is what they, they're telling me that we are. <laughs> We're about all black people in the United States. 
You know, it's not one segment of Black people. We're about all Black people, justice for all Black people. Folks are coming through mostly through um, a progressive or democratic leaning lens, but not completely. But the unity isn't necessarily around like politics or Democrats with a big D. The unity is around wanting to resolve a specific issue or get justice in a specific issue or be heard in a specific issue. So that's the type of work that we do. I think um, in addition to sort of some of the traditional racial justice issues that are focused on criminal justice reform, voting rights and democracy, economic justice, color of change has brought an explicit ideology and lens around corporate power and racial justice. And so we see that through our Silicon Valley or tech accountability work. We see that through our Hollywood or media accountability work. We see that through all sorts of lenses of corporate accountability work. And so I think that's how Specifically, this pushing back against corporate power lens has been um, one of the ways in which color of change has built power and pushed for real world change for Black people. If you're responding to sort of the topical stuff, the things that come up, the things that are in the news, how do you find a balance between chasing the latest and trying to work on it and the things that require long-term pushing that may not be in the news lately? Yeah, it's such a great question because so much of the early digital training that I received, like I got my job at Color of Change through New Organizing Institute. And, you know, I went to like a boot camp and, you know, you had to run a campaign and the idea was get the, get the email out first, rapid response, get the email out first. I've learned since then that, you know, we talk about a lot of things as rapid response, but they're really not rapid response. So at Color of Change, um, our campaigners are organized into issue areas or beats, they would be called in journalism. And what I often tell my team is that we may not know what is going to happen tomorrow, but we can anticipate those things if we believe in the harm that we're talking about. And so if you believe that discriminatory policing um, and mass incarceration is going to lead to X, Y, Z, you might not know that George Floyd is going to be murdered on May 25th, but you know, like, Someone is going to be murdered by police. It's probably going to be captured on video. There's going to need to be a response. So a lot of the things that we have to deal with are anticipatable moments because we be- we believe in the harm. And so if I think about our criminal justice work, our, our, our theory of change around our criminal justice work is really centered in pushing back on those that profiteer from discriminatory policing and mass incarceration. And that shows up with, you know, folks that profiteer from bail, folks that, prof- you know, we have politicians that run for office on these tough on crime policies. They profiteer through image um, and reputation. We watch the news. Um, we watch, uh, you know, shows like Law and Order. There's all these people that are profiteering from this like culture of discriminatory policing and mass incarceration. And our job Uh, is to find smart ways to push back against that. And our job as campaigners, because we know the harm is going to happen, is just to watch for those moments. And just to say like, okay, we knew this was going to happen. It just so happened in like Minneapolis, or it just so happened in XYZ place. A big part of the reorientation 
for me as a digital campaigner for color of change and the campaigners there has been like rapid response doesn't exist. Like it's all like we we've all talked about what's going to happen. It's about having the thing, the systems and the people and the capacity in place to be able to respond in those moments um, in smart ways. A couple of years ago, I talked to James Rucker, who was a co-founder of your organization and came out of a software background and, and came out of an entrepreneurial background. And I know he's uh, given up the leadership quite a long time ago, but I wonder like what are the stories you guys tell internally about how you act entrepreneurially in a space like this? How do you uh, allow yourself to keep changing? It's in your name. How do you guys see yourselves in that regard? Yeah. And James is so brilliant and such a visionary and such a mentor. I often think about what it requires to create something and step away from it you know, put all of your yourself into it and then like say, hey, here's this next batch of people and I'm going to let them like run with it and make all these mistakes today. Hey. Having done that in my own software company, I will give people a lot of credit who do that. Yes. It's hard. As I've been at Color Change for 10 years, I'm like, oh God, like it's hard. <laughs> it's hard when you've made deep sacrifices and you're so personally invested to say, I'm going to step away. But James, what I appreciate so much about James, what I've learned so much about James. James had the vision to say, you know, move on. When move on was like, you know, let's do a black thing. He he had the vision to say like, that should be something separate and created this model and color of change. And then didn't stop there really. Helped to found groups like 18 Million Rising, who are really focused on the API community, Ultraviolet, who are focusing on women, Get Equal, you know, you know, the list goes on and on. Digital organizations sort of in a certain form uh, that began to become constituency-centered versus progressive-centered. And I think that was like the brilliance of James's decision to launch Color of Change, but as well as his decision to launch a number of other groups, as well as Citizen Engagement Lab. That vision is impeccable because I think we're in this space where, you know, the country is so polarized and progressives or Democrats saying something means very little. Women saying something, Black people saying something, Latinx people saying something. That That is a constituency when you're talking to corporations or when you're talking to politicians that they want to fight for, you know, right wing versus progressives, that's like, you know, it can go either way. And folks oftentimes want to stay out of that sort of stuff. Um, So I do think that there was um, so much vision and brilliance. And we've grown a lot in our understanding of the complexity and diversity of Color of Change members and what they want to do. Like I came to Color of Change in 2012. I was super naive. I just quit a job at this organization called Courage Campaign, where I was doing a lot of marriage equality organizing. Um, I just turned 30 and I sort of came in, actually it was like February 1st, first day of Black History Month, 2012. And I was like, oh, I have a job at a Black organization and I'm starting on Black History Month. And I sort of came in super naive, like what racist thing could happen possibly, you know? It's 2012, we have a Black president. And very, I very quickly learned that like a lot of racist things could happen. Several weeks later, Trayvon Martin was killed. 
it was such an interesting time to join Color of Change because it was a moment where I actually could, I, I could see very clearly the power or and the potential that Color of Change had. When I came in, I came in as the voting rights director and folks prior to me had been working on this campaign around voter ID laws that have been spreading across the country. And so they were talking to corporations like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Kraft around them being members of this organization called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they were talking to them about voter ID laws. You know, we were having lots of meetings. Nothing would happen. And then Trayvon Martin was murdered. And color change was very quickly, like within a week, able to make a connection between stand your ground laws that were keeping George Zimmerman out of jail and the ALEC committee that was also pushing these voter ID laws across the country. And so they made that strategic insight, they connected them, and suddenly we had dozens and dozens of corporations having to defend themselves for being a part of this. For years, people were doing corporate divestment ALEC organizing. Um, And so we talk about the power of color of change, not as a digital organization that runs petitions and then get like a million people to sign. We talk about Color of Change as an organization that takes the news cycle, strategic insights, as well as like a real membership organization, and then pushes on folks to make change. This is not about an email. The thing that we don't do well, the best work at Color of Change is it coming out over our email channel or our social media channel, because the best work um, is the work where we're leveraging the threat of a more public conversation to push politicians or corporations to make the changes that we want to see in the world. If you could put your finger on some of the most substantial changes in that regard that you forced, what would some of them be? If I were to start at the like district attorney level, color changes work to elect I think we're approaching three dozen progressive district attorneys, most of whom are still in place across the country, all in black communities, predominantly black communities. And they're making like real shifts. And these aren't shifts that the everyday average person is going to feel. You know, the decision of a prosecutor not to use bail as a leverage point and trying to get guilty verdicts. Uh, The decision of a prosecutor say like, we're just not going to deal with marijuana. You know, those Things that we deem as small decisions have real impacts. Um, You know, I think that's one space that Color of Change has uh, really led in, helped to popularize, helped to push back against like the critique around. And as we move into spaces where we're talking about uh, local approaches to public safety and justice, I think we'll continue to see positive outcomes from that sort of work. And when I joined uh, in 2012, Color of Change was the only, one of the only Black civil rights groups that wasn't taking money from major corporations. And so um, this discussion of like corporate power, the influence that corporations have have had over government, but also movement, I think Color of Change has deeply contributed to. Uh, We see that, um, I think, most acutely in the work uh, that Color of Change has done around tech accountability. We sort of got into the tech accountability work accidentally. I graduated from Stanford in 04, and like one of the things that happens if you graduate from Stanford in 04 is that all your friends end up working at Facebook. And, And so there are all these people having these conversations like, you know, 
Silicon Valley is awful. Facebook's so racist. And my like initial response was like, these are the people I grew up with, people I partied with. These are people that took jobs in their like local hometown just because they didn't want to get a real job. Like that's you know, if you got a job at Facebook in two thousand four, like you just wanted to continue the Stanford story for a few years. You weren't going there to hang out with more elites. Yeah. yeah. You you were going there to spread disinformation or, you know, not hire black people. I've recently interviewed a sequence of former people out of the Facebook public policy or politics part. I don't know if you know, like Crystal Patterson, different people that have been there that have the best intentions on every front. And when you talk to them, you realize things are complicated in that in that arena, even if you can be pretty grumpy at some of the high level results, which have been terrible out of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, um, you know, we sort of got into this tech accountability conversation and we started in really shallow ways. At first it was about diversity. Like why, why aren't Facebook and Twitter hiring black people? Like that was the surface level that we got into. And then you start to dig a little deeper and you're like, Oh, here are all these other unintentional consequences of the way that you all are showing up in the world. And they're like affecting my people. They're affecting my family. They're affecting the way that my organization does work. This job has just been a lesson in like deepening and my understanding of the way that industries and systems work. But I really think that a big piece of color of changes contribution is to say we're in a changing world, we're in a changing environment, and that requires institutions uh, that are willing to take on some of the forces that folks might not be aware of or super woke to, but that have real implications on the daily lives um, that we live. When you say that uh, Color of Change is the only Black-led group that didn't take corporate money. Something in my mind said, this is a commentary and a way to distinguish between color of change and, and a previous generation of organizations, the NAACP and others that have been important in change in this country and, and venerated for good reason, but are different. I don't know enough about them to know whether they took corporate money, but my guess is that they did. And that maybe the view is that made them more establishment or less able to do a program like that. But help me understand what was behind that remark and and what does that mean? Well, when I came on at Color Change in 2012, we were um, still in the middle of the net neutrality conversation. The conversation was about how certain companies poured money into our civil rights institutions to take a position to frame that position as like the black progressive position when there was like another black progressive position about net neutrality being a racial justice issue, frankly, about net neutrality being more about the digital divide um, and bridging the digital divide. We've seen corporate influence. We have seen corporate influence throughout politics. Hard stop. The, The notion that Black civil rights organizations or institutions would be immune from that is not realistic. A big part of the context of 
my work at Color of Change and the evolving power of Color of Change is like, you know, at first you're an organization railing against black institutions for taking money from AT&T um, on a certain issue or the CBC taking money from XYZ corporations to an organization that now has to work in partnership, an organization that understands a little bit more of the complex and nuances, an organization that, you know, it's different working. You know, I came, there were like five or six people at Color Change. We had a budget of less than half a million dollars. The pressure to sustain now that you have hundreds of employees, like all those influences, I came into an organization that criticized it. I, I'm still critical of it. And yet I understand some of the decisions. I understand why people made certain decisions. How big is Color of Change now in terms of people and budget? Color of Change of fully staff is probably like between 200 and 250 staff across several institutions. Um, oh God, I just got back from sabbatical. So I'm like, what is our budget? We're probably, I want to say a $40 million organization this year between our three entities. I could be um, messing that up. That is in the upper, some very small percent of political organizations in the country. No question. Yeah. Are you going to change that policy? Is that going to like to grow more? Do you need to open different channels, you know, for funding? Do you have to think about corporate partnerships in different ways? I mean, I, it actually recalls to me like things that are going on in the environmental movement that have been for a long time. You'll hear often some of the smaller, more aggressive environmental organizations point to the Sierra clubs that have been around longer and, and, and are working on partnerships that they feel are very impactful around pollution or other environmental accords. The world is similar across different categories of activism. I feel like I should start with my utopia vision versus like in utopia color of change builds a powerful small dollar donor base that is consistent and reliable with a mix of foundations and, you know, high net worth individuals who will let us be unapologetic, unbossed, unbought, like all those things. Like that's what I'm investing my time and energy to. Are there partnerships that emerge through the course of campaign work? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are, back in the day, someone did something that upset you, you blast off an email, you put it on social media. Now that you've had 40 meetings with them over the course of 10 years, you send them an email first and you ask to jump on the phone. Like that's like the reality of negotiating with power. I do think it's an important that we have institutions <laughs> that are not survived by corporations. I do think it's incredibly important. I won't control color change for the rest of history or the world, but like the majority, in my mind, the majority of our sustainability should come from people. It shouldn't come from folks that are trying to influence our power in one direction or another. I was making an analogy in my head between move on and color of change and James having had experience trying to do a pack and now you're running color of change pack. I'm on the Did, move on board too. Yeah. There you go. I, I think you're all over the place. Does that model ever occur to you that, Hey, 
there's a time when I want to start my own organization that I can completely create in my own image or oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have another startup in me. I don't know. I'm not at that point where I'm like, I want to just start from scratch and do it like I, so no, that's not in me. There are definitely moments in time where I'm like, this model isn't working. I'm so frustrated. I feel limited by it. But I've been with an organization through a scale of like five people to 250. I'm going to need a break before I like <laughs> through that. Well, also, I mean, you've learned so much about inevitably about entrepreneurship in the space by going from close to the beginning to now. What do you think are the key things you've learned about how you scale an organization like this? Um, it's really hard the entire time. Like it's never easy. That's my experience too. Like the troubles are always. Yeah. The small, the problems that feel small that you don't tackle get bigger and bigger and bigger. I didn't appreciate for years how much you have to repeat the same thing over. Like it oftentimes feels like ingenuine to me to tell my same story or say the same vision or give the same speech. But, you know, Beyonce performs and she always sings single ladies, you know, she has to perform a song that she's been singing for 20 years. Yeah. I, I always wonder about those rock stars, et cetera, because I mean, are they sick of it? Do they love it? Is it a mix? They gotta be. Like I've told my story of self so many times that I'm like, I feel like a fake person for continuing to like tell this. But there's a there's a performance element to it. There's a repetition element to it. I didn't dream of being a manager, you know. Like I, it's like one. <laughs> who dreams of that? Yeah. yeah. Who dreams of that? And all of a sudden, you know, you're. And all of a sudden, it's so crucial to actually accomplishing something mm-hmm. is to get other human beings aligned and productive Mm -hmm. and, and not firing at each other or whatever it is. That's such a skill if you're good at it. Yeah. There's this nuance sometimes between being celebrated and feeling like it's a completely thankless thing. And so like, I, I I don't know. I think I have had to do so much self-work through this job. I often like fantasize about these people that like have jobs and they just like go to the job <laughs> I know. and they like come home and they like do, they have a hobby, you know, they like do other things. What's been the hardest area for you to grow in? The hardest area has been like overcoming like the shyness. Yeah. We started being out talking able, about that. Yeah. yeah. Being yeah. able to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I think you've gotten there. <laughs> One's always working on oneself. Yeah. I, I, I keep saying to myself, like, I'll quit this job when it doesn't feel hard. Like when it's no, like I'm a, you know, I'm a Capricorn. Like I, you know, I'm an ambitious person. I like a challenge. And there hasn't been a day, a single day in 10 years where it hasn't felt hard. It just hasn't felt like I've been like trying to do something that I felt like was beyond my capacity or I felt unsure about or. We had to negotiate a lot of people's emotions and feelings around. So, yeah, I think the hardest thing for me has just been learning to feel uncomfortable and live in that discomfort and still be productive and contribute. Is there a question that either you get asked and it makes you uncomfortable or you don't get asked and you're thankful that should be asked of you? You know, I don't consider myself an overly political person. 
person. I didn't grow up that way. And so I'm not a policy nerd. I'm not a political nerd in like a lot of ways. Like, you know, you know, all the senators. Do you- I, I, because I've studied in the last few years, but it wasn't something like a name. I worry about, like, I can never remember anyone's name. I don't have good, like, facial recognition. I'm not, like, a good networker. You know, I'm, like, you know, people are, like, smooth in rooms. Like, that's not an awkward in rooms. But I think that I offer different things uh, to the movement because of how I grew up. I've had to be a bridge builder. I've grown up in, you know, I've been a Black girl or woman in predominantly white spaces oftentimes. And so I've had to learn how to communicate to different audiences. I've often felt like an outsider in my life. And so I've learned how to build community with other folks that don't feel like they have um, tons of power. But um, no, I, I, I often feel like in the work that I do and the interviews that I do, we're often talking a lot about policy and politics, there's very little discussion of what does it mean to build an organization? What does it mean to be a progressive leader building an organization in the context of a world that doesn't believe in institutions, that is being like inundated with like disinformation and right-wing narratives around how there should be no social safety net, you can't trust institutions, like everything's bad. Um, what it means to be a black woman within that. Um, like, I think those are the conversations that I'm sometimes afraid to have are like the inside baseball of like movement nonsense. That was the, the paragraph or two of an introspective person, right? That's someone who is thinking about herself and her job and her place, which I don't think everybody does, even though it seems completely normal and natural to me also. I wonder how, how do you fit into this organization? Like I don't, I've never talked to Rashad Robinson, who is the executive director of the color of change, right? What's your relationship like with the other parts of leadership? How do you see them and what is their imprint on the organization? First of all, Rashad hired me almost 10 years ago. I think it was his first director hire. So I've like had a manager for 10 years, like a single manager. Rashad is like the blood of color change right now. I've seen a lot of people in movement and politics. I don't know that there are a ton of people that work harder than Rashad, that are smarter than Rashad, that are savvier than Rashad. So I feel like a lot of the vision, a lot of my political education has come not only from Rashad, but from like color of change and, you know, James's theory around corporate, corporate power and pushing, you know, a lot, you know, color of change has been my political home effectively. Like that's where my political education has come from. I report directly to Rashad. I lead the campaigns department. I mean, I lead our pack. I think all of these things have grown organically. Neither Rashad or I, when I came to color of change, first of all, I'd never heard of color of change when I got a job at color of change. Second of all, you know, Rashad took a pay cut to come to color of change because he like saw something, he believed in it, you know, he was coming from glad um, and was doing all of this media accountability work on behalf of LGBT people and saw this vast, like no one was doing this for black people. Rashad has sort of um, been a huge visionary. He's a big part of my life. He's a mentor of mine in addition to being 
um, my boss and manager. I think where I have been the last 10 years is trying to figure out how to implement lots of visions. Occasionally I'll have my own vision and that like will lead us in a direction. Like, you know, occasionally I'll say like, Rashad, you know, I have all these friends that work at Facebook. We should like talk to them and, you know, see, and then that will lead to tech accountability work or most of my greatest things have come from me just being like at color change been from me just being like completely naive. Like I was in a meeting and I was like, why is Trump allowed to be on Twitter? You know? And that like started two years of work around like, you know, why are certain people allowed to be there? And so I feel like I have learned so much here. Um, The visionaries that have set me up well have been James and Rashad. I'm really privileged and thankful to find a political home here, to be allowed to experiment and to have the type of coaching, like, you know, you can have five good ideas and 95 bad ideas, but to be able to have the type of coaching to be like, no, 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 that, that thing, you know, y'all are talking about doing a brunch for black women. Like that doesn't sound ridiculous. That other thing that you're talking about totally off the mark. Do you ever find yourself at odds with either Rashad and his leadership or what your constituency is currently pushing for that you think they need to be steered differently? Often, I I actually think I really identify with our membership, which I would describe as, you know, we have this like archetype of like the radical progressive left. That's not actually who like, color of changes membership are they're actually like kind of people like me like my family who sort of move in and out of issues and ideas like you can be really upset over George Floyd and not get upset over a lot of other things you know I work with Rashad and so we don't always agree I often struggle between bridging the gap between color of change membership folks that look a lot like my family feel a lot like me and movement whose job it is to push like that's the job of movement is to make people more progressive. And, and there are definitely times where like movement's job is to be ahead and movement is often ahead of where our members are where my family is and figuring out how to have that communication, I think has been more of my focus. I'm rarely frustrated with our members, rarely frustrated with members. That adds up, your kind of answer to that question adds up to a pretty good place to work, if you ask me, probably why you've been there for a decade. What is your vision for yourself? Is it 10 more years? Are there certain accomplishments that you'd like to see? You noted that James Rucker, at a certain point, it made sense for him to move on, and maybe there was someone better than him to take the organization to the next stage. Do you ever think about that? I do. I do. I think about that a lot. For me, I want us to, I want color of change to exist beyond. Now we're at a point where, you know, I'll be in a meeting with our staff and they'll be like, so Arisha, what's the 10 year plan for color of change? And I like, we'll go back to like 10 year ago, Arisha. And I'll be like, well, you know, the idea that color of change would exist in 10 years is like yeah. a big deal. Like it that is. was never like a, uh, most a, organizations do not, do not last five, then they don't last 10 and then they don't last 20. We see the ones that do, of course, because they're the ones that do, but there's no reason to take it for granted. 
Yeah. I'm thinking about like, what does that next level of sustainability look like for the organization? I think I'll leave when I don't see like the potential of it. It's just been so much like we're growing. We're, oh, we tried this. This was hard before. Now it's easy now and we can get more now. Like I, I, I'm still at that point where it feels growth oriented. It still feels like hard. But no, there will have to be a time to move on. One of the things I worry a lot about um, in the space that we're in um, is just, you know, professional development, staff development, political education, like a lot of that stuff isn't happening in our movement. And I think I said this earlier, like we're living in a world where people don't believe in institutions. And if you're running a progressive institution, if you're running a black progressive institution, like you're supposed to be the model, you have to be damn near perfect. And so more and more, while when I started Color of Change, I was really interested in sort of like the public ideas that got to spread. And that's like super exciting to like have an idea in a meeting and then all of a sudden people in the world are like, that's a super exciting thing. I have become more interested in the internal organizational building that allows internal leaders to like grow in the same, like I got to make mistakes. There were like six people, like no one was reading the email, the beauty, like the privilege and the beauty. Well, I've seen a couple of organizations in the 10 years that that have gone zero to a hundred overnight. And I think the great privilege that color of change has had is that it's sort of been like steady, you know, there's been growth. We've been in the conversation but it's been steady. We haven't been totally overwhelmed um, by it. And I just want the people that are coming up under me, and there's some like great, really talented, smart people. I want them to be able to learn and make mistakes without it being held against them for the rest of their lives. (laughs) To me, that's a lot of wisdom in there. It's what happens with experience when you're paying attention. We're coming up on two more elections. 2022, 2024, you, you guys are not the Democratic Party. You are a independent organization, but you're part of the progressive ecosystem, I would say, even though what you are is complicated and, and distinct. I'm probably with most normal Democrats right now that I'm terrified that we're going to go backwards and then maybe even backwards again in possibly horrendous ways. What are you guys thinking about and how do you think about that relationship to the party, that relationship to national elections. I mean, you've talked about the local elections. Those are important too, maybe more important sometimes, but like, how do you, how do you approach these two big ones coming? The next two big ones are going to be hard. I am personally, you know, I don't know if it's just like a spiritual, whatever, whatever needs to happen will happen. And that might mean a level of like regression. And I think, you know, we lived through that with Trump. Like this level of like deep intensity, people being harmed, lives affected. There's a cynical part of me that feels like we haven't learned all the lessons that we needed to learn um, from that era and might have to like repeat that cycle. We're not Democratic Party members. That's not where our money flows from in any way. I think the role of an organization like Color of Change Path, you know, I what I really think is that we need as progressives, membership organizations outside of the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party is never going to be able to contain 
or hold the coalition that we need to make the changes that we want to see in the world. They can't do it. They're not interested in it. Democrats are focused on building their institution and organization. And I think progressives have to be just as interested in, as Democrats were in building their own institution organization and building our own institution organizations. Um, and so I sometimes feel like we're in competition with the Democratic Party in that machine um, who, uh, for me, feels like it's focused on just electing people, but not necessarily on the tangible real world changes. It always feels like a fight over the map versus, no, how are we going to, you know, I'm not scoot the progressive wing, some of those folks um, who are actually trying to do that. But uh, I view us as an institution that is very much outside of the Democratic Party that can potentially help and support the Democratic Party if they want to act right in certain things. Um, but that is absolutely vital to progressive values as uh, we become a nation, as we become a country and a generation that is less tied, less institutionally tied. You know, the next two years, you know, the next year, they're going to be people knocking on doors and trying to explain what just happened as Democrats had a majority. Even though it's like fake to everyone that really does politics, this like 50 person, like, you know. We didn't quite have a progressive majority. Yeah. It was yeah. never enough to get what we wanted done. But like, that doesn't resonate. Most people didn't even hear about a Senate par- parliamentarian. Yeah. But it's, and, and how do you make the case that like we made progress? Yes, we want more. And if we don't turn out, it's going to be retrogression instead of progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I don't. I don't it, know. It I, don't, I don't know how you make that case. I do know what we can do is to continue to invest in building communities of people that every single time that there's an election is willing to have a conversation with their friends about why it's important to show up. And I do think that that's very important um, to do. We've gotten this very transactional conversation in electoral politics where it's like just not going and now everybody's like oh i we've talked to millions of we sent millions of text messages you know we've talked to millions of voters there's no engagement it's all transaction but every every organizer and activist that i talk to as opposed to say um direct mail consultant they all say that they all say we need to be organizing year-round we need to be organizing around things that matter to people locally that are not about just a vote in a November, but are about why does a fire hydrant always stuck when you need it or whatever the, whatever the local issue is. Right. I mean, that seems to be like a very well-known thing now in the right communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet there, the reason that we haven't gotten over that barrier is that there are a set of profiteers or a set of people profiting from not building or sustaining membership-based organizations. There is like a consultant class, a consultocracy um, that are offshoots of the Democratic Party that build these electoral pop-up shops that have no accountability. They have no membership. They have no influence. They're taking money. They're taking, like elections are becoming more expensive when we're talking to less people. Who are you talking about when you're saying that? I... Super PACs, you know, the fundraising online with hype and then not really engaged in organizing, but 
in in advertising instead or something like that. Single issue electoral efforts. You don't, you don't like those. I mean, I don't love it. I don't. I. I. What I see is movement organizations, mostly state and local based organizations, becoming vendors for the Democratic Party, and it just makes everybody like. Every single one of them I've ever talked to has said, we don't want that. They don't want to. They don't yeah. want to. They don't but, want to. Nobody but, wants but to. But they see money. They see the money. They have to pay their people. It's like, you know, I understand why black civil rights groups eventually took money from AT&T and all. You know, like you, you know, there are a set of things that you're responsible for as a leader. And there's rationalizations that you make. Right. A hundred percent. And the funders tell you what they think works. And the thing that's happening isn't working. And what's happening now is that we're building very shallow relationships just for the purpose of elections. And then we're not fulfilling the promises that we made at the door. And so we literally have an electoral voter outreach system, which incentivizes door knocks, but not conversations. Like literally like... A funder will be like, hey, we want you to knock a million doors, not not we want you to have a million conversations. And so that means that like you knock a door, you wait five seconds and you run. Is there a problem on the promising side? Because you see a lot of people on every part of the Democratic Party, from the progressive left to the moderate middle or whatever, whatever you want to call it, that want there they have things they want to do. They have things that they're going to put forward if they're in office, but that they can't deliver on because of the realities of their state legislature or their city council or the U.S. Congress or whatever, are the form of the promises wrong fundamentally? I think so. Like, I think, I think politicians know that they're talking to an audience that wants instant gratification and they know they can't deliver that. And they should be educating people about what, you know, this is a process, this is going to take applied effort by you over time rather than elect me, I will fix it. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. And this is how I'm going to show up. And these are the other people are going to do this, but I'm going to show up this way. And I'm doing that. I, I am stopping this because of this, but actually like, you know, you're going to actually have to figure out how to overcome racist gerrymandering and elect three or four more people to actually get this thing done. Like it's not going to happen in this like succinct electoral cycle. I think we just have to start really being honest with people. I think that's why we have to do deeper relationship building, why having membership organizations that are building local neighborhood teams or chapters and are bringing their friends and family. Like these are nuanced conversations we have to be able to sustain ourselves through the nonsense because we have less power. You can't convince me that there's no reason for there not to be student loan forgiveness other than them being like really money interests involved. You can't convince me that it doesn't make sense for Democrats to tackle voting rights. There are so many other interests and I think we have to like let people in. It's not just about like going and casting your ballot and this person does this other transactional thing. There's this like very complex power that we're fighting. We have to be ready and willing to take on that full power. It's to me, it's democracy is not a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. You just have to be a participant. You only have power if you use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
you know, we're in this internet social media era where people feel like presence is power and it's like not like presence can lead to power. But I think the thing that progressives sometimes struggle with is this negotiating with power. We like to be the bat swinging the pinata, you know? Well, it's like you were talking about movement earlier. Like maybe movement is is outside of color of change to some degree, depending on where you draw the lines, right? We need the whole scope of people that are trying to go the same direction at different speeds to get anything done. And we need the people who are pushing the hardest, but then at some point through some complex calculus, some proposal has to go through that gets a majority. And we can see how close we've come on some things and how we've gotten other things over the line. Yeah, no, and I think that's where color of change and color of change pack really exists in our movement, you know, you can have a debate. I don't even know whether I'm an abolitionist. You know, I actually have like tons of questions, but I like, you know, think it's interesting. But, you know, the thing that I'm interested in is what happens between now and abolition? What happens between now and reparations? There are like a set of things. What happens between now and universal basic income? Like there are a set of things that have to happen that are going to feel reformists. They're going to feel like half measures, but... Even if you get those things, even if you get universal basic income, there's after, right? It's, it will get taken away. It will get lowered. It, it will, you know, it's, it's never over. Yeah. It's, it's never over. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where color of change lives. We've gotten criticism for it before. You know, I think this is where like the rapid response, like, oh, you're just responding to this one thing. Um, but I'm interested in all the things that have to happen between now and all of the most ambitious proposals that we have to make. I know that I live in a movement, at least with the smartest players, folks on the movement side, folks on the Democratic, the smartest folks know we're all on the same team. We all play different roles. It's the non-professional organizers, the folks that don't know this is an industry, like I was at one point. I entered organizing after being a grassroots volunteer for the Obama campaign and was like shocked to learn that people were paid to turn out voters for the, like, you know, we know our roles. It's about how we like communicate those things to others. My role, my purpose um, is very much living in the like today, what happens between now and the best things that we want to come after us. And yeah, so that's what I, that's what I've been living on a daily basis. Like trying to figure out who are those targets? What are those asks? And what will not set us up in ways that we don't want to be set up for in the future? Well, I, I feel like I've taken advantage of a lot of your time and it's been an honor. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? No, this is like one of the longest interviews I've ever had. I feel like you've asked all the I listened to a longer one you did with Marshall Gantz. Oh, I haven't listened to that one yet. How'd that go? I liked it. I like it when I interview people who haven't been interviewed at length because then I learn everything fresh and I also don't feel like I'm duplicating something that's out there. And I, I definitely set out to not like rehash some of the stuff that you told him. He is a person with an amazing history and knowledge of this space that I can't compete with, but he struck me as interested in your story and sympathetic to your story and trying to elevate it in ways 
and interpret it in ways that I appreciate it. You know, I, I, I recommend to other people if, if they found you interesting here and they, this is where they found you first, listen to that one too. I didn't know about Marshall when I got involved in organizing, but he has been so influential to my training. My first training was through Camp Obama, which he and others helped to design. You know, it was really stressing the public narrative and using the story. So, like all of the things that I learned as a grassroots volunteer through the Obama campaign, I still use daily. I'm still, I feel like, for folks that haven't heard my story, but that was my entry into politics, like going into volunteer and phone bank for the Obama campaign in 07. There's still a piece of me that's like chasing that. I was in California. It was super grassroots. I'm like still chasing that like grassroots Obama 07 moment. I want that for Black people so bad. I believe that it exists. I know that it exists. Marshall, because of the other leaders that he has trained and because of the systems and infrastructure um, that he's put in place, he has been a deep influence on my life um, before I even met him. I think that's like a great community organizer. I want there to be ideas out there in the world, and I know there are. Um, that came from me that you didn't even know existed. Like you didn't even know it came from me. Like I think that's like that's what organizing is. It's like making yourself small. It's making others larger. Marshall for me, without even knowing his name, was my original. When Obama was talking about what it means to be a community organizer, that's what like Marshall was teaching. Yeah. Um, no, I, I that that must have been a great feeling to be asked to do that and have that chance. Um, he hasn't done too many interviews. I hope he does more. I talked the other day to a woman named Cynthia Wallace, who ran for Congress in one of the Carolinas and didn't, and didn't succeed, African-American woman. And she is now doing like a rural Democratic group down there. It's kind of what you're talking about a second ago. Like she is so close to a small number of rural counties where she's meeting those people on a daily basis and like trying to get them vaccinated and trying to organize them. She is not a nationally known figure and probably never will be, but I just found that conversation to be very moving because it's so real when you are at that level organizing. Yeah. I used to say on my Twitter, I never used to tweet because I hate Twitter. But it, my like thing used to be like watch the quiet ones, and it's a thing that I like believe in. The loud folks will like attract attention, but there's like a set of work happening, not only on the progressive side, but just like in the world in our country, even in for nefarious purposes, and it, they're being really quiet about it. The loud can be can pull your attention and can be distracting, but I think the work is happening from very quiet places on both the left and the right. I remain, as a quiet person, I feel like I remain fascinated by quiet people. That, that's what I'm reading. That's who I'm paying attention to. That's who I'm asking questions of. Um, I think you've found a way to, to wield substantial power as a quiet person. And I appreciate that you're doing it. And I hope you keep doing it. And it was an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? I appreciate you. Thank you. That was Arisha Hatch. Arisha is at colorofchange.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.